And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. All right, thank you, Rich. That passage and the story following it will be our focus this morning uh, for our sermon. So we're going to go down through the end of chapter 7. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to lead us through this time together. God, we thank you once again for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you for gathering us together as a family and When we come together, Lord, we know that um, you give us your word as bread to eat. And we come to your word looking for sustenance this morning. We want to taste and see once again that you are good in our lives. And so, God, please meet us where we are. I pray that you'd satisfy the hunger in our souls this morning. Uh, Please feed us. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. So when it comes to grilling chicken, I don't have as much confidence as I do with beef. There's something about beef that can be served up on a plate, and it's okay if it's still red. In fact, I kind of like it red. A little medium rare is tasty. But not with chicken. You can't have any red coming out of the chicken. Not much confidence, not always sure of the outcome there. When it comes to confidence, this last week or for the last few months, many folks would say, I'm not very confident in the financial market going on. Some would look at our government and, okay, I don't need to go there. Uh, Some would look at their health and the numbers that have been They've been reading and the checkups and the new aches and pains, and there's not much confidence in their health. When we think about confidence, we're talking about being sure of an outcome. So this passage in Mark is deliberately here. It's for a purpose. Mark is weaving theology together. And the big idea that I want you to see from this passage this morning, and it's the principle that I think ultimately Luke or Mark is driving at here is that we can have confidence that God will bring his saving power into people's lives. We can have confidence that God will bring his saving power into people's lives. Okay, so where have we been in the Gospel of Mark? Big picture. Starting back at the beginning of Mark, Mark says, I want you to know who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Christ. The deliverer, that's one title, a deliverer. The second title is that he is the son of God. Okay, so in essence, he is divine in nature. Maybe in his role, you could say he is the deliverer, the Christ. And then 
Mark opens his gospel with a passage from Isaiah saying, hey, make straight a highway, prepare a way for the Lord in the wilderness. Here he comes. And that's taken from a passage in Isaiah where we're looking for a king to come to establish his kingdom here. And so Jesus' first words at the beginning of Mark, actually, down in verse 15, are this. The time is here. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. So You have to be able to look at the Old Testament and hear the language of kingdom and see Jesus' words for what they are where Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom that you are looking for in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in the other prophets, I want you to know, I'm here. The kingdom of God is present with you. And so what is the requirement to come into the kingdom? Well, it's repentance repentance, turning from what you were following, whether it was a good thing or an evil thing, repentance is turning from that and following the king now, following Jesus. So Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, to narrow it in from where we were last week, last week we saw Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, and they are the foil so often in the story, the enemy of Jesus. One of their hang-ups concerned the categories that were present in the Mosaic Law, categories of clean and unclean. And what the Pharisees did is they expanded these categories of clean and unclean, and as we read through that, we saw how they expanded it. They did not expand it under the authority of the Mosaic Law or under the authority of what the phrase in that passage were, God's commands— They expanded the categories of clean and unclean under the tradition of the elders. So, it would be the equivalent of saying, here's the word of God, the scripture. We'll leave that there. And what we're going to do is expand another authority that we will place ourselves under. That was the Pharisees, the tradition of the elders. And the Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands, which in their view of under the tradition of the elders was unclean. They were looking down their nose at the disciples. So Jesus took that as an opportunity to teach his disciples what was truly clean and unclean. He declared all foods to be clean, but what was unclean then? Well, Jesus makes this statement where he clearly takes the focus away from foods, and he talks about the heart. The heart, the deepest part of who we are, not the four chambers behind your sternum, but the deepest part of who you are as a person is defiled or unclean with all kinds of sin. Sin defiles us. That's what Jesus was talking about last week. Thirteen sins that he listed off, not exhaustive, but enough for us to realize, oh, I'm defiled and I need help. Our hearts need a cleansing that will only take place when we come to the one who can deliver us from this defilement. That is the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And in faith, we receive him as a gift. He gives us his clean life of righteousness so that we can stand before the Father being clean from sin. This is the the message that Mark is unpacking, and he keeps hooking it back to Jesus. So this morning... It's as though Mark has 
seen Jesus talking about those things that are unclean. And now he moves us to a place where Jesus is going. It's to the region of the unclean. Okay, so this morning, two points to the sermon. Jesus delivers a Gentile daughter. We come to this section in Mark which pertains to a place and people of uncleanness. A place that all of Mark's original readers, remember Mark is writing in the first century, his original readers would have been very familiar with this place. It's the city of Tyre located, if you're looking at the map, it's located up here along the Mediterranean Sea. This location that Mark mentions of Jesus going to now surprises the original readers. The reason why Tyre would have surprised the original readers is because this location is clearly outside the borders of Israel. Now, I say that kind of loosely because Israel at this time when this is written is under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so they really have no borders, but in terms of how they stuck together and sort of landed in that area, this city of Tyre is not a Jewish city at all. It's a Gentile city. Jesus had been around the Sea of Galilee. He'd been with Nazareth, in Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethsaida. These are the people who understood the Jewish customs. But here Jesus is walking away from his familiar surroundings. He's going to a city 25 miles to the northwest. And in verse 24, it says that he entered, that's Jesus, entered into a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. It makes us wonder, why didn't Jesus want anyone to know of his whereabouts? Why was it that he was kind of hunkering down and aiming to go 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee along to this coastal city? Why did he want to be alone? Mark doesn't tell us. Some speculation, it may have been that the crowds that we have seen following Jesus have just flat out exhausted him. He needed some reprieve. It may have been that he wants to temper the expectations of people. There's a messianic fever that people are catching. The Messiah, this guy is healing people. He can answer the Pharisees. He, he can stand up and we haven't seen any faults in him. He could be the Messiah that Isaiah has been talking about. And Jesus doesn't want this messianic fever to thwart his ministry. He's sort of tempering the fever according to his ministry that he's carrying out. And if it reaches a high pitch, it could thwart his ministry and the work that he still has to accomplish. So maybe that's why he's there. Jesus goes outside of Galilee to this district, to this place called Tyre. He enters a house where he just wants to be unnoticed, but that doesn't happen. Mark uses his favorite word in verse 25, immediately. Immediately a woman came to him, and Mark gives us several details about this woman in verse 25. Number one, she has a little daughter with an unclean spirit. And we've seen that the unclean spirits are synonymous for demons. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Number two, it says in verse 25 that she had heard of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus up north in Galilee is radiating outwards 
Perhaps Gentiles have come into the Jewish district. Perhaps Jews have gone into the Gentile district to do business, and they're talking about what's going on. She had heard of Jesus. Number three, we see her posture. She comes and falls down at Jesus' feet. And then in verse 26, Mark tells us very specifically more about this woman. Verse 26, the woman was a Gentile. Specifically, a Syrophoenician, that, that relates to a region kind of to the north and west of Galilee. Being that she was from a region that bordered Israel, we can assume that she would have known the Jewish customs. She would have known that in the Jewish eye, she was unclean as a Gentile. She hadn't gone through all the rituals of purification, the control of a demon. And every time you see your daughter under the control of that demon, there's nothing that you can do with her or for her. You're helpless in this situation. So a few weeks ago, we made a trip to the ER because one of our girls, remember, you can't talk to my kids, and my girls are in here. You can't talk to my kids about illustrations that I use. But one of our girls is sitting at the table, and we're eating food, and all of a sudden she goes something like this. I can't see my hand. I can see this hand, but I can't see this hand, right? I can see it here, but I can't see it here. I can see this hand over here, but all of this, I can't see it. And my first thought, I have this little saying, um, quick come, quick go. You know, you got a pain, oh, my leg hurts. Okay, all right, that'll come and go. Um, other things, they come and go. So we're sitting there thinking, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Maybe it's just a little floater in the eye that got stuck in front of the pupil or something. I don't know. And then a few moments later, she's saying, um, I might forget the order. Um, my head hurts. Okay, so Google, which can be your worst enemy. It's like, okay, your daughter has a ticking time bomb in her head. It's going to explode. That's like what Google comes up with. You know, like, okay, call the phone nurse. So we call the phone nurse. The phone nurse says, yeah, you might want to get her in. So we head up there. So you run into the hospital and get her all checked in. And we had texted with a doctor that we know ahead of time. And I don't know if that doctor pulled strings or not. But we get there, and there's a pretty full waiting room. And we're there for like two or three minutes. Natalie Burkholz, come on back. And thankfully, she gets back. And oh, sorry, I just said your name, Pina. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> all right, you can't talk to Natalie about this, all right? She's protected. So we go back, and the docs were great. But, you know, you're going through all this time, and they throw out pediatric stroke possibility. And um, so they run the CAT scan, and they run an MRI, and they say, okay, we can rule it out. There's no signs of stroke. But you're sitting through all of this, and you're saying, what is it that's causing this in my daughter? I wish I could extract it and pull it out. Some of you have had much more severe. Several families in our church have had to travel, travel to Ann Arbor, to other hospitals, because you're just looking for help. You think about this woman, no medical help, and she sees her daughter and the effects of this demon that's on her daughter, and she is completely helpless. 
So as a Gentile, she goes to the extreme, extreme humility, extreme awkwardness in the eyes of many people, but it doesn't matter for her. She's heard about this Jewish man named Jesus, and she knows that he has had the ability and the power to set the oppressed free, to give those who are in bondage liberty. And so this Gentile woman asks the Jewish Jesus, please have mercy on me and deliver my daughter from this demon. And there she is on the floor, perhaps looking up into Jesus' eyes, perhaps her head buried down. So how does Jesus respond to this desperate mom? Certainly not as expected. Verse 27, Jesus says things that kind of mess with us. Verse 27 Here's his response. Now think about this with a desperate woman. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's. And at first glance, it sounds very harsh. It sounds belittling. It sounds denigrating. Here's a man speaking down to a woman. Is he just chauvinizing over her? couple of things that you need to know. Number one is the word for dog here is not the typical word of just this average stray dog. It's the idea of a little dog, more than likely a puppy. Second is this, that in Jesus's day there were stray dogs and then there were home dogs, the little dogs. And in Jesus's day they didn't have royal canine, they didn't have puppy chow, they didn't have Purina one in the bag. What did they feed their dogs with? The scraps from the table. And so what Jesus is saying in this little parable here is that there's a priority to his ministry, just like there is a priority in the, and then the Greek. His ministry was to his own people, and as John said, even when he came to his own people, what did his own people do? They, they eventually rejected him. But he was going to come to his own people. God had made a covenant with them. So there's an order in the way that Jesus is carrying out his ministry, and still it seems awkward for us. It seems awkward because Jesus is saying that she is not one of the children. She's not a Jew. And that helps us understand this picture here because Jesus as a Jew is now talking to this Gentile woman outside of his culture and outside of his people. Yet Jesus is not saying your request is going to go unheard. He's saying this, I think, to test the woman's persistence in faith. It's not meant to be a shutdown comment. It's meant to be a hook to her heart to draw her out even more. And we've seen Jesus do this in the past. He did this with the woman who had the hemorrhaging issue. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment and was healed. And she hoped that Jesus would just keep walking and that she would be unnoticed. And Jesus stops in that moment, turns around and says, who touched me? To draw her one step further, to cause her to identify herself with him. And I think that that's what Jesus is doing here. He's drawing this woman one step further, somewhat testing the bounds of her faith. And so how does she respond? Look at how she responds in verse 28. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, even the puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs. And with that, she's expressing so much here. Yes, Lord, you're right. I don't deserve your food right now, but on the basis of your 
goodness, on the basis of who you are in terms of being a grace giver, please give me what I don't deserve right now. And I used to take this as a bold, almost like a, you know, you read things through your own culture. So you can almost read this through some sort of feministic language here where a woman catches Jesus. Jesus belittled the woman. He's acting like a chauvinist, and she rises up and acts like a feminist, all that kind of stuff, but that's not the case. Jesus is drawing in a begging woman, and she's not outwitting him. She's just simply saying, I come to you, Jesus. I come to you with nothing to prop you up as a ruler, I only come with the problems that make you needed. I only come with the hunger that you can satisfy. My life is hungry for you to give me something here. Please, on the basis of your goodness, cast me some crumbs. Cast me some mercy. It's a picture of our own salvation here for just a moment. That when we come to Jesus in faith, we don't come on the basis of who we are. She's not coming on the basis of being somebody worthy of Jesus' mercy here. And we don't come to him on the basis of who we are, the good things that we have done. We come because we see our need. We come because we're desperate. We come because we see our sin. And only through Jesus can we be delivered. It's Jonathan Edwards who said that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And we come to Jesus saying, look, I need mercy. I need you to deliver me. I need you to pour out only what you have because I can't find this mercy in any other name other than in you. And when we come to Jesus for salvation, we are approaching him with the desperate need and Jesus leads us along and says, will you identify with me? Will you identify with me? Because it's through me and no other name. Now back to the woman. Think about this scene for just a moment. On the one hand, she could have demonstrated offensiveness at Jesus' comments. Jesus, did you just call me insignificant? Did you just say that, you know, I'm not as important as I think I am? And that could strike at somebody's pride. But there's humility with this woman, and she's saying, God, I don't deserve your grace, but please shower me with it today. There could be pride on the other hand, there can be the approach of self-pity. God, I'm worthless. I'm such a castaway. In fact, I'm a waste of skin. I'm never going to amount to anything in life. I don't deserve any of this. In fact, I just, I just feel like you shouldn't show mercy on me. I came across this letter from John Newton in a commentary. He was writing to a person who was struggling with this sort of self-pity kind of mindset Newton wrote, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also, and here it is, too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. 
You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. And Newton's point here is that there's a way that some people approach Jesus as though their sin outsins the mercy and grace of Jesus. Woe is me. Now, Jesus has enough bread for those who are starving, enough forgiveness for those who have sinned the worst of sins. And so if you're here this morning and you're just struggling because you say, man, I've outsinned the mercy and the grace of Jesus, Jesus rises up and says, oh, I'm your deliverer. I have more mercy than what you could ever receive. It will cover all of your sins, all of your past transgressions. So whatever you're wrestling with, believer or non-believer, we come to Jesus and we just under the the shower of the cross here, letting Jesus' mercy pour out on us. But beware of the forms of pride, being too offended by Jesus, who calls us sinners and who points out our need, or feeling worthless as though your sin is too great for Jesus' mercy. Here's the woman who understands Jesus' grace. And in verses 29 and 30, Jesus responds to the woman and says, For this statement, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. I love this picture. We've seen Jesus at work in the lives of people, setting them free from demons. In fact, back in chapter 3, the religious leaders are seeing Jesus cast out demons, and they come to him, and they say, oh, the way that he does this is that he is of the house of Satan. He is of the house of Beelzebul. And Jesus responds and says this, wait a second, guys. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. You think about that. There's a house with all kinds of goods and it's defended by a strong man. How are you getting in? You have to wrap up that strong man with cords and bind him so that you can go in and plunder his goods. Jesus says, then he indeed may plunder his house. And this is the point That Jesus is coming into the realm where Satan has been roaming like a lion, like a roaring lion. Satan has captured people. He has possessed people with demons. And Jesus is saying, I am coming into Satan's house and I am wrapping him up with cords. I am binding him so that I might plunder his house and set free those who have been held captive by him. It's another just point to here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Deliverer, who comes in, and he has greater power than Satan. He has greater power than sin. And so I just think about this. I'm like, here is sin represented, and some of us come in with all of our struggles of sin, and like, I can't do it by myself. And I'm saying, yes, look to the one who is greater than your sin, who can bind Satan and set the captive free. It's a Messiah who's come. It's a Messiah, the Son of God, who's more powerful than the demons. It's a Messiah who gives deliverance. And so just yet another reason for us as Christ followers here to say, yes, my faith is hooked on to Jesus. And if you're not a believer here, you haven't followed Jesus, you're seeing who he is. 
you're seeing that he's greater than sin. If you haven't come to Jesus in faith, I just want you to see here he is, a merciful, compassionate Savior who's offering salvation to the Gentiles, to those who are unclean. Story number one. Okay, story number two, verses 31 to 37. Jesus heals a Gentile man. Jesus heals a Gentile man. All right, 31, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Okay, so you're looking at a map. I'm on the other side of the map right now just to track where Jesus has been. Here's Tyre up along the Mediterranean Sea, and Jesus has left Galilee, gone over to Tyre, and now it appears as though his travels have been somewhat um, circular. He's made a trip all the way down here out of the Sea of Galilee, flows the Jordan River, and to the east there is the region of Decapolis. It was named that Decapolis, Deca 10 polis cities. So here's the region of 10 cities, a Gentile territory again in the region of the unclean. And he meets a man here. It says in verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf. And not only is he deaf, but it says that he has a speech impediment. And notice the language that's being used at the end of verse 32. More begging. They begged him to lay his hands on him. So Jesus takes this man who hasn't been able to hear and hasn't been able to talk. And it says in verse 33 that Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately. Now just pause there for a moment. Imagine a man who has not been able to hear and has not been able to speak perhaps his whole life. In terms of being social, you can imagine that he's on the outside fringe a lot of times. He can't interact with the guys joking around. He can't hear the jokes, the banter back and forth. He can't speak into it, maybe motioning with things and awkwardly making noises out of his mouth. I think the guy's probably bashful. And if Jesus is going to do something with him, perhaps the best thing for a bashful guy is to move him off to the side and go in private. And what Jesus does here in verse 33 is he puts his fingers into his ears, and then the end of verse 33 says, after spitting, he touched his tongue. We don't know the reason for why he was spitting here. There's a belief that's circulating around this time that the spit that came from divine beings like emperors and, in this case, a divine deity that's present, Jesus himself, that the spit was medicinal in purposes. Just a belief that it was. So the man has this going on with Jesus touching his ears and then perhaps with his tongue or his thumbs coming around and touching his tongue. And in verse 34, it says that Jesus looked up into heaven and sighed or groaned. And said, Ephetha, which means be opened. And in verse 35, you have this language that immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. All right, another area, Gentile territory. 
um, another healing, another deliverance. What's going on here? Hang with me for just a moment, and I'm going to try to tie some things together. There are two words in this particular story that I want to draw your attention to. The first one is in verse 32, speech impediment. Okay. Um, in the Greek, it's simply magalelos. Maga means difficult, lelos means to speak. You say, okay, what's the point in this? It appears only one other time in the Bible. In a very popular passage to the Jewish culture. It's found in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 7. And what's going on here in this passage is Isaiah is describing a time when God would come and his kingdom would prevail and spread out into the earth. So you see it on the screen. What's going to happen? Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute, the Magilelos, will sing for joy. When Jesus is carrying out these miracles, the imagery of the kingdom of God in Isaiah <clears throat> is like it's being splashed out in Jesus' life because the blind are seeing, the deaf are being healed, the lame man, the paralytic in Matthew, or Mark 2 are rising up and standing and leaping. The tongue of the mute, the Magalelos, are able to now sing for joy. And what Mark is showing us is that the prophecies of kingdom presence in Isaiah are coming true in the person of Jesus, that he is coming to visit his people. Now, I said there were two words. The second word is side. That's down in verse 34 looked up to heaven, and he sighed and said to him, Ephetha. This word sigh is a deep groan. It's something about pain. Paul uses it in Romans 8.23 when he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, we sigh inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. We're in this world and we're saying, man, we're, we're looking forward to, to the end. When Jesus is groaning, he's feeling a struggle. He's feeling the suffering. He's feeling the pain. And this same word for groan pops up again. Guess what chapter in Isaiah? Isaiah 35, verse 10. It says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and groaning or sighing shall flee away. This man has groaned for years, possibly since childbirth. Jesus meets him and feels his suffering, and he groans on behalf of him. Jesus is burdened for this man, and only Jesus can help this man. So again, what's Mark's point? Mark's point is that the kingdom and the king of that kingdom is now standing in front of them. The hopes of Israel, the hopes of God's people are going to be found in Jesus. And not only is it hope for Israel, but where is he taking this? He's taking the power of the kingdom to the Gentiles as well. So God's plan is spilling over into the Gentile world. 
Jesus is willing to bring his power, his redemptive rule into the lives of those who are responding to him in faith. Now the story concludes. Verse 35 or 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I think he's telling them not to tell people because it raises that messianic fever. He's tempering that so he can carry on his ministry all the way to the end. Verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So what do we see in all of this? We see Jesus certainly bringing deliverance to the Gentiles. Now, two applications that I want us to focus in on as we bring this to a close. Number one is this. Simply these three words, confidence in God. Confidence in God. Now, there's a bit of Old Testament theology here. According to the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen servant. And we see this in this passage here where Israel is going to be a light to the nations of the world. Through Israel, the nations of the world would be blessed. So Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, Tyre along the coast, and give attention to you peoples from afar, the Decapolis. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, and he named my name. Do you remember when the angel approached Jesus, or Mary, I'm sorry, and gave Jesus Jesus' name? You're going to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins? Perhaps language right now that we should be thinking of, who is this that's been named from the mother's womb? Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Where do we see that? Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, describing Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And now, verse 3, it said, he said to me, you are my servant, and he uses this language, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And it seems as though this language starts to overlap. Here's Jesus that we're thinking could be described in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, he says, you are my servant Israel. Is he talking about the nation? Or is he talking about a Messiah? Well, he continues on down to verse 6. And he says this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Well, he was just speaking of Israel. And now the tribes of Jacob, that's Israel. So it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Here's the language. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel failed in its responsibility to take the light of God to the nations. But out of Israel would come a Messiah. Out of Israel came a man. You could say even a representative. And in Jesus here, you see him doing what local Israel was failing to do. 
going to the Gentiles, meeting the Gentiles, and bringing the light to the nations. This was a promise that God had made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that from you all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we're anticipating that Israel is going to fulfill that and they're going to be a light to the Gentiles, but over and over again because of their sin, they fail. And yet here comes the sinless Jew, Jesus himself. And in his lifetime, we see him reaching out into Gentile territory and bringing the kingdom, bringing the rule and reign of God into people's lives, setting people free. We ask, okay, how is he going to keep doing that? How is he going to keep pushing out those concentric circles to the nations? Matthew chapter 28. Remember Jesus' last words to his disciples? He's commissioning them out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And how is he going to do it? He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus is going to the end of the world through people who are going to the end of the world. One other passage, and then I'll try to tie this together with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, but notice the phrase that he follows up with. It's not just us speaking, it's God in us making his appeal through us. And so we can see that God is the one who is making his appeal. God is the one who is with his people who are going to the uttermost parts of the earth. God is the one who is actually speaking through us so that the message of the gospel, the blessing, might reach the nations. So we can express thanks that Jesus has gone forth, that God is reaching the Gentiles. God came to our Tyre. He came to our Decapolis. He brought his spiritual kingdom of salvation and victory over sin into our lives. And what an encouragement, because Jesus is not dead. His kingdom is going forth as promised, and it's like he's splashing out the power of the kingdom. And some of you might be thinking, all right, Nate, are you saying it's all here? I don't think it's all here. I think there's more kingdom to be realized, but it is pouring out through our lives into other people's lives right now. And that's why we embrace and pursue missions. We believe in the promise that God is going to be a bless blessing to all of the nations all the way to the ends of the earth. So this morning, we prayed for David and Sarah Watson. We're not naming the country for security reasons. We're saying Southeast Asia. They feel comfortable with that. They're going to unreached people groups. And as David and Sarah are going there, who's with them going to the end of the world to make his appeal? It's Jesus. He's with them. It's why Luke and Karen are going to Utah to reach people in Mormon country. Who's with them? It's Jesus who is with them. It's why you can go next door and make the appeal to people. It's why you can go into your work. It's why you can go to your unsaved family members and know that this is not something that I am appealing to on my behalf. I'm only coming to you, and here is the blessing. God is going to reach the nations. He's the one who is going to do the work. I just get to be faithful and be present. 
what confidence we can have knowing that God is doing the work through us. He is going to save those people in Tyre. He is going to save those people in Decapolis. He is going to save those people in Grand Haven. He is going to save those people in Southeast, Southeast Asia. It's God who is doing the work. And the more that I was just like letting this sink in, the more I look at our lives as light to the nations and saying, this is exciting for us. This is exciting for us to have a front row seat that God is actually pressing his power outward into the nations, and we don't have to sit back in fear. The world is getting darker, but God is going to shine his light brighter in people's lives. And we never know when we're bumping up against a woman from Tyre or a man from Decapolis. We never know who that person is, but we get to have the confidence that God is saving people. This is the big picture of what God is doing throughout Scripture. And then you go all the way to the end, to Revelation. And who is standing before the throne? It's people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. God is doing the work. We get to be a part of it, and we're thankful that he's done it in our lives. So we respond with confidence in God. And last, we respond with confidence in God, but we receive him with humility and faith. The Syrophoenician woman persisted in humility, believing that Jesus could save. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you need to come to Jesus in faith, appealing for his mercy He's the deliverer, the Messiah, who alone sets you free from the judgment of your sin. He's the greatest of kings. Not a king who would stay on a throne, but a king who would descend and come to his people. A king who would take on the most lowliest of positions among his people and do what only a warrior would do on behalf of his people. He would lay down his life. He would fight for his people. And in doing that, he was taking the punishment upon himself that his people deserved for their sins. This is the king who comes down out of love, willfully dying on the cross in your place. And yet, as a king, he wasn't defeated. Three days later, he was rising victoriously over the grave, showing that he did accomplish salvation for you. And so we come to him saying, you are the king who accomplished the work. You're the king who went out. You're the king who died for us. You're the king who rose again. And you're the king who continues to go out and spread your kingdom all over the world. And we're coming to you in humility and faith, believing in you as our Savior. So in a world that is growing darker with sin, we can be confident in what God is doing. And in our own hearts and lives, we can say, okay, Lord, I'm humbled, and yet I believe. I'm with you even to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Just with your heads bowed, in the quietness of your heart, can you just respond to God's word? Perhaps out of thanks, perhaps out of belief. Just respond to God in the quietness of your heart in prayer.
and then I'll come back and pray. God, again, we thank you for your grace and your compassion. We thank you for your work that will not be thwarted or hindered. And our confidence, Lord, is in you. I pray that we would walk forward with humility and strengthened in faith because of who you are. And so please lead us yet again into another week. And we ask that our eyes would not falter from you, that we would keep our eyes on you walking by faith throughout the week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.